Escape from Plan A. Hey, uh, what's up, Liza and Philip? Glad to have you. And Liza, we're so happy to have you back. Listeners, in case you didn't follow us from our onset, uh, Liza is one of our co-creators. Really, you know, I think the heart of Plan A, uh, especially when we first started, uh, she like took some time off. Uh, Liza, I mean, tell everyone what you've been up to, but we're so glad to have you back. Thank you. This is a treat. It's been a long time since I've been on the show and it's nice to be back. It you know, it feels just like old times, even when we were setting up this pod. So thank you to Chris and Philip for having me here today. Um, so recently, I mean, since um, since leaving Plan A, I've been focusing on my own blog, Aesthetic Distance, and I've been organizing with Malaya Movement and helping out the Filipino uh, human rights situation. Um and also, I finally launched Decolonize Your Bookshelves, which Chris has been very helpful there, too. So, you know, we both have a love of Asian American and Asian literature. Yeah, which is exactly the topic we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to go through some uh, Asian American YA books, some from way back in the day, like in the 90s to much more contemporary ones. But just quick check in. Um, you know, we are in the middle of the lockdown. Uh, any how, how are you guys holding up? I'm actually enjoying this. I almost feel hey, me, me guilty saying that, but I really, I just really like, I don't know, I guess because I'm so introverted and I prefer to be home anyway, that I'm like, well, now everyone's forced to stay home with me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and all the all the fake introverts are, are being exposed, right? <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. You don't have to wear like pants anymore. It's like, <laughs> you know, at the most soft pants. Um, you don't have to fix your hair anymore. <laughs> you still gotta wear. You still gotta wear a nice top because everyone's like doing Zoom meetings and stuff now. So, still gotta Speaking look good. Speaking of Zoom meetings, last night was the first time that I got Zoom bombed. Yeah, oh. I heard that's a oh. thing now. That's act- that actually happens like to people. Like it. It sounds like a. Thing yeah, so it's rare one of those things that I like. I read about in what Boston Globe or like one of those publications yeah. where they talked about people getting Zoom bombed, and I'm like, oh, that's something that you know that that can't that can't. Ha- it must be extreme when it does happen, but that can't be happening all that much. So last night, I was doing a Zoom webinar for Malaya Movement, and mm-hmm. I was um, facilitating a course on uh, colonization's impact in Manila. And about 15 minutes in, I don't know, maybe like 20 or 30 people came in there and just started disrupting, you know, it was mostly like four main ones. And they started disrupting either by like posting nasty images like porn or just like yelling stuff and typing stuff in the chat. Um, That's, yeah. I didn't realize that like I, I know that this happened I didn't I thought it was like always one person who came in and like flashed no it's like a something. whole group and like I kind of yeah I kind when I was like I was talking and I could see like these little boxes pop up with their photos and it was like you know it was like four white dudes so I was like okay this is a little odd because yeah this is you know Malaya movement is <laughs> Filipino yeah. and it's Philam. So a lot of white faces are not common in these um, in these Zoom chats. So I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe it's because I, I made 
the lake public and I've been promoting it on like Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. But what's scary about these Zoom bombings is how targeted they are because it's like they knew my name and it seemed like they followed me already on social media. And someone later on where it happened to them said that um, they will like, these are very coordinated attacks and like they're very targeted and like they will mm-hmm. research the person that they're about to bomb or like the organization that they're what? about to bomb. That's unsettling. Yeah. Uh, Philip, how's the newlywed lockdown life? Uh, it's good. It's good. Um, you know, what have, else can you say though, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the only thing I'm allowed to publicly say. Uh, I mean, like I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm my, my biggest issue is that I like going outside and like cycling, like as a, solitary you know but isn't that quite safe still it is it Mm -hmm. is safe to do but it's just kind of weird because like it feels like you shouldn't be doing like the way people are behaving is that they're behaving as if there's like you know clouds of plague you know gases (laughs) drifting around (laughs) the miasma the poisonous yeah but in in reality like everyone could be outside so long as they're you know adhering to all the social distancing rules um but no one does it right like sidewalks are still pretty crowded in some spots um they've had to lock down parks and stuff in toronto because people were kind of like heading out on nice days. I think the, the big issue is like, especially for Canada, the weather's getting nicer right as the mm-hmm. lockdown started. Yeah, it's like, it's like the one month of nice weather. Yeah, right? and we're like desperate to get out there. So so that's been kind of kind of tough. But like, I'm, I'm trying to do my bike rides and stuff. And like, we have our we have our like, um, our kind of routine every day where like around 2, 2.30, we'll make our own coffees at home and like head out to the terrace in our condo and stuff. And uh, mm. it's been, yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been all right. Sounds good. Uh, all right, so why don't we start talking about the books that we read for this, you know, our, our little assignment, our syllabus. So the four books we read were Finding My Voice and If It Hadn't Been for Yunjun, which are both by Marie G. Lee, mm-hmm. uh, American Born Chinese by Jean Luan Yang, and finally Patron Saints of Nothing by Randy Ribe. Ribe. Ribe, okay. And uh, the reason this uh, I, uh, I had this idea to do this was actually Marie G. Lee uh, reached out to us at Plan A. Um, she just said, like, you know, she liked what we were doing and everything. And actually, Liza, I think on one of the panels that uh, you invited me to, you you mentioned her that, that Finding My Voice was like the first Asian-American YA novel ever published. Is that correct? That is correct. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and this it was took 19- all the way till 91. Yeah, it was like 91, 92, like early 90s. Uh, and... I think I think before we get started, uh, I think some people might wonder why the hell should we care about YA? Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. I think that's a worthy discussion to have before we we de- delve into this. So, what do you guys think? Well, you know, I think it's interesting that the very first Asian American YA ever published is called Finding Your Voice, because I think that finding your voice, so to speak, is is one of the most important experiences that we have in our lives. And I think some people find it really early on, and I'm I really envy those people. And then some people don't find it until their 30s or 40s or even beyond. So like growing up, I had like no exposure to Asian authors or any Asian American authors, especially, um, and definitely no Filipino American authors. And mm-hmm. I think that by the time like a 19 or 20 year old is reading their first Asian authored book, it's almost too late. Like that void <laughs> is so normalized Wait, by then. True, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Philip, what about you? Um, I, I think maybe you mentioned this in a previous pod about YA, but like, there's something about YA that's a bit of a kind of a sign of the times, so to speak. And like, I kind of mm. got this feeling, especially from from um, finding my voice and and uh, if it wasn't for Yunjun, because uh, they're they're written in the early '90s, and it felt, and I'll, we'll get into this when we talk about them, but it felt very much so like 
a time capsule, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Of what mm-hmm. was going on at the time. Um, and there's a lot of, like outdated references and kind of outdated thinking and so on, right? Which if you look back now, like it, it kind of made sense then, but now it feels kind of weird. And I had a hard time reading those two books in particular because I feel like race discourse has moved along so far, right? Especially if you're talking about it online and stuff like we do, where it's super, super, you know, advanced and uh, complicated and nuanced now, right? But looking back at this, it feels like almost a caricature. Um, but it's good to see it, right? Because then you see what what was the evolution of all this. I had no idea that Finding My Voice was like the first <laughs> Asian American YA. Uh, and, yeah. and I think that really changed my perspective on the book and like what I thought about it. Um, but it's important, right, to have these kind of... Um, uh, almost documentations to some extent of what's going on. And it's also good to see, like, it, it gives you a sense of, like, what were Asian American kids thinking back then? You know, if you think about the second book, um, if it wasn't for Yoon Jun, like, the the way, we'll get into it more, of course, but, like, the way, like, Korean culture is treated now is, like, night and day to how it was back then. <laughs> so why yeah, exactly. it gives you that kind of, like, uh, kind of, like, you know, time capsule to look back at. But there's also this important question. I think you've also talked about this before on, on our podcast, but like, you know, who are the kind of gatekeepers um, in the selection process for these narratives and these stories, right? Like, who are the editors who decide what gets published and what doesn't, you know, what gets, you know, published, but like edited down or emphasized and what doesn't. And so those are things, I think, good things to keep in mind um, with YA. And we should care about that because it does shape the way people think about themselves, especially if it's a really seminal piece, like the first Asian American YA novel, which I assume a lot of Asian American kids had read and thought, this is what my life is like or can be like. I think that's mm-hmm. it's super influential in that sense. And like, you know, those are your kind of your formative years, right? Like these two books, three books, uh, four books actually are, are all across like middle school through high school. And those are super formative, at least for me, in terms of how I thought about race and myself and people around me. Um, so that's super important to, to keep an eye on. I wanted to add that, like, um, so it, so one of the most iconic books for Filipino Americans, especially ones um, my age or a generation older, it's not YA, but it's a book called Dog Eaters by Jessica Hagedorn, which came out in 91. And um, that is the first time that I learned that the word gook came from the American soldiers in the Philippine-American War, yeah. not yep. the Vietnam War. I had no idea until I read that book. But also... You know, um, going back to what Philip was talking about, how it's like a time capsule and the way that race is treated back then, like 1991, like the early 90s were just the beginning of multiculturalism here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was also new. And it's like any kind of acknowledgement was considered progressive. Right. Right. Yeah. And um, why I think why matters is I, I think of books that I read when I was a kid, that really meant a lot. Things like uh, Maniac McGee, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And even if you don't read these books, I, I, I think, uh, especially nowadays, kids might not read as much, but then a lot of other people do. And that does influence culture and mm-hmm. how people talk about things, how people think about things. So it, it does matter when when you're growing up what you see uh, and what, what you're reading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is really important to just, especially to know where we're coming from, like what Philip said, because... Uh, yeah, when you read some things that are older, there might be things that'll make you go, oh, you know, kind of like that's how we really thought. But then it makes you understand 
where you're coming from and also what what to move on nowadays mm-hmm. uh, to, to see what what it looks like um, well for a lot of for a lot of young people YA so so YA for the audience um, it is for ages 12 to 18 and it's not set in stone it's just like the marketing demographic and for a lot of young people of that age that's when they really start to discover a love of reading and this is the age that they turn to books to explore the topics that they're probably not going to feel comfortable talking to their parents or their friends about, like especially romance. Mm-hmm. And I think this mm-hmm. is why a lot of YA, there's like some sort of like first love theme yeah. in a yeah. lot of coming of age stories. Yeah. Yeah. It's also that age when, when you first start, you know, going through puberty and all that and where, you know, girls and boys start stop becoming ew, ick, you know, and you know, <laughs> the, the exact opposite. Right. So th- there's a lot of, there's like a lot of inherent uh, universal drama that mm-hmm. can get conveyed during that age group, which is why I think it's very important to you know, keep an eye on, on keep your eyes and ears open and, and respect the, the material. I mean, let's be honest, there's a lot of bad YA out there as well, but you know, that's true of any genre. So to just automatically dismiss it, I think is just, it, it's like, it's snobbiness for for no good reason, especially when you know this is what a lot of people are reading now. So yeah, you you can write the you know most uh, fluidingest um, uh, fancy schmancy book, but if nobody reads it, then uh, you know it's, your reach is kind of limited. All right, so let's well, why don't we delve into the first of these books? So Philip, you had the good idea. Let's go on chronologically. So let's start with Finding My Voice. So I'll, I'll just go uh, do a quick synopsis of this book. Um, it's uh, I forgot the main character's name. I mean, because it, it's like first person, so I forgot her name. Oh, Ellen. Okay, so Ellen is, she's a girl. Uh, she's growing up in rural Minnesota, which is uh, the actual place Marie G. Lee is from, mm-hmm. a town in Minnesota called Hibbing. And I don't think it's even in that town. It's like near that town, so even smaller part. It's about her growing up there. She's like, I think in her senior year, might be, uh, and then she her biggest problems are she really wants to get into Harvard. She has this crush on this guy tom Purr, uh and she's wondering if uh, he likes her back and you know she's got some she wants to like hang out with friends but her her parents won't let her so it's very very um you know everyday kind of story so uh, i was wondering what your guys' thoughts were on this uh so i don't mind starting i actually really didn't like this book um oh, yeah? i think i don't know i had a hard time kind of extricating myself from the fact that it's like like I said, like a like a time capsule set in the early '90s. Um, I found that it was, I don't know, maybe like you said, it's like an everyday book. It like doesn't have a lot of complexity to the plot. It very much so the character felt like she's just trying to, you know, be a person. Maybe maybe more so be like closer to a white person than an Asian person. Um, it does get into race, of course, but like it gets into it um, just in a few basic ways. Which again, if you think about this book as being the first like Asian American YA, that's a huge deal. But but like. By today's standards, it, it you know didn't really do that much for me. Um, I had a lot of problems with like the character just being very like she spends a lot of time like you know dealing with these kind of minor conflicts really in life or major for her, but maybe minor in the grand scheme of things because she like you know has this big struggle over like working hard to get into Harvard and then like going to a bunch of schools like Harvard, Brown, and uh, Wesleyan. I think is is the the, the all female school. Wellesley, 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 Wellesley sorry, yeah. Um, and then in the end, I was like, oh, maybe they'll be interesting. And she'll actually like pick like one of the other schools and not Harvard, the obvious choice, right, to go into. <laughs> but in the end, she goes into Harvard anyway, right? Like this, it, it just felt very, I don't know, there wasn't a lot of, 
it, it, it didn't really add much to the character. I, I feel th- there's this one particular part of the book that I had trouble with, which is that like the father figure, her dad, um, who's Korean American, um, uh-huh. was played kind of, kind of stereotypical, like very stereotypically, right. Um, as you'd imagine an Asian dad to be, you know, very stern, never smiles, you know, never acknowledges her successes, that kind of thing, which, okay, maybe true. Maybe there's, there's a lot of people who've seen that, including the author growing up. Um, but at one point, like halfway through the book, she kind of sprinkles this really interesting, and this is, this is probably the part of the book that I like maybe the most was, um, uh, the character Ellen, like goes into her dad's office and she like comes across a couple of like photo books, uh, or memorabilia books with like newspaper clippings and stuff. And it alludes to his past in like the Korean war from North Korea, like him coming from North Korea and like his sacrifice to, to be a doctor in a small town. Um, you know, in order to, to build up his life here. And then like she closes the book and it like gets mentioned zero times until near the end when her dad speaks to her, like when all the resolutions are kind of coming together, her dad kind of speaks to her more honestly about what he went through. And there's a little bit of a conclusion, but like you don't, you don't really get that much of it, right? It was like this kind of glimpse into like potentially a very interesting narrative around like race and sacrifice and the immigrant story and whatnot. And then like it is kind of left flat and isn't really concluded in a a satisfying way, at least not for me. Um, So I don't know if my expectations were just really high, but like, I felt like in all those cases, like I just didn't, didn't really do it for me. You know, Um, like the, you know, the, the, the male love interest was like super bland jock, right. It felt a bit like a bit like, bit like a fantasy uh, to imagine that this relationship would just kind of like work without any struggle, which was roughly the case in this book. Um, but again, maybe people need to see that that was possible, right? Back then, um, reading these uh-huh. books, right? That, that's the that's the thing that salvages for me is just to imagine this is like the the first piece in this genre. In that case, it's a huge fucking deal for sure. But on its own, I don't think it it stands up very well. Certainly not in twenty twenty, but like in nineteen ninety two, mm, not too sure. So that's kind of my my <laughs> maybe maybe slightly harsh uh, take on it. Uh, Liza, what are your thoughts on finding my voice? I actually really, I, I have to, um, I disagree with Philip. I actually really like this book, but you mm-hmm. know, there's a part of it because it's, um, I, I always, I think that I always give a little bit of leeway or maybe a lot of leeway to something being the first one, mm-hmm. you know, like I expect, um, an Asian American YA novel written in 2020 to be, to handle race and to handle all these coming of age topics, um, in a much more, you know, with a like with a lot more, um, I guess a lot more critically, I guess. And I would say that finding my voice, like if I had in 1992, I don't even know how old I was. I probably, I probably wasn't old enough to read this, but if I had discovered this when I got to middle school, for example, later on, like this, this would have made a big difference to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think you would have learned from this book? I think, you know, I think that something to learn about this book, a lot of it comes from how it got published. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of my respect for the book comes from. I see. Um, you mean like how hard it was to get published? Yeah, it was, you know, what a lot of people don't know about the, um, the background of this novel. Uh, so, um, Marie Lee's road to publication was a huge struggle and, you know, her literary agent sent out the manuscript over and over again over the course of the year. And it was rejected over and over again. 
And part of that was because in the 80s and the very, very early 90s, everyone's idea of diversity was basically like an all white cast of characters, but just throw in the Asian person or the black person just for like, you know, for color, mm-hmm. like literally. Uh-huh. <laughs> and if a novel- You mean like as a side character? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like the sassy black friend, for example, or the Asian mm-hmm. girl sidekick. And then, so if a novel did focus on a character's race or ethnicity, which is what this book does, it's only done in the form of historical fiction, you know, like Joy Luck Club. And it's it's made very clear that publishers were rejecting her manuscript, not because of genre, but specific, specifically because of race. And she had a very blunt treatment of race um, that I think that a lot of uh, literary agents found off-putting. But that's exactly what I like about the book. Like, I, I, I agree with Philip that it's not like, you know, well, we, uh, of all the books that we've read, this probably would never be in like, it wouldn't even be in your, like your top 20 of like, oh, that's one of the greatest reads. But, um, you know, as, as far as like game changing, yeah, this is up there. That's a good point. Cause like, if it felt to me, like now that I understand the, what she went through to publish this, it felt to me like it was. In, intentionally watered down you know what i'm saying like the book yeah, had, had yeah. really like i said it had really great glimpses into interesting discourse around you know immigration racial issues racism right um and she was blunt in some parts like she actually had a lot of like you know problems like one of the big struggles was around uh the racist kids at school right which is something that i don't right, think gets yeah, talked about so right so so while the book is about like ellen and um the abuse that she that she goes through by small town white racists and a lot of other um, tough issues like that. But, and it's like, it's for now and like for us in 2020, it's so strange for us to think about how a YA novel like that would be, like that would be in such high demand in today's market. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. especially with all the obsession right now with authenticity and like own voices. Yeah, I, I thought this book, um, I always had to keep in mind this was 1992. Because obviously, if th- I read this book now, it'd be like, what is this basic ass bullshit, right? <laughs> but yeah. keep it, yeah. keeping in mind that it was in 92 and what a different time it was and where she grew up. Yeah, Marie Lee, Marie Lee at that time was facing a kind of bias in the publishing industry that just, I'm sorry, but it just wouldn't exist today. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like, you know, when you when you think about how like, um, an, incho- an entire generation of Asian Americans were just completely erased and they have no, they have no representation at all. Well, it's not that people weren't writing these stories that, you know, there was a lot of authors like Marie G. Lee who were writing it, but just straight up rejection because of what they were writing about. Yeah. Um, Philip, I could, I, I agree with you in, in well, I thought the, the romance thing didn't, it's like okay, so she, like the guy she likes is a guy named Tomper. He's this like white jock who's like pretty popular, and everyone thinks he's cute and all. There's no real obstacle to them getting together. He she she really likes him. She wonders if he likes her back, and then he does. And I thought <laughs> and that's there it, was right. right there, that, that was it. There's um and and he's like the main villain really in the story is is that Marsha. She's like this cheerleader, like blonde or something. Yeah. She's she's like really popular. She says a lot of the, you know, like stuff like chink and gook and go eat dogs kind of thing. And then Tomper, the, the, the guy she likes, is 
is the guy who who protects her from that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i'm sure that kind of stuff did go on like the harsh uh language but nowadays um i think we would want to see something a bit more nuanced although hey with, with this like, coronavirus thing it's kind of a throwback to those days but in general <laughs> speak in generally it's bats ki- not dogs now yeah <laughs> the kind of stuff that really messes with with asian americans is not being explicitly called this kind of stuff and it, it's the more it's the gaslighting so mm-hmm. I, that would be the the evolution of, of that so i don't want to say like oh that stuff would never happen because i know that stuff happened but mm-hmm. it does that's the time capsule aspect of it where racism against asians was really you know people beating you up and, and calling you chink right i also uh thought the and this is something i noticed with a lot of the other asian american YA books like uh patron saints uh frankly in love is this the end goal of college especially like like a harvard type school mm-hmm. and i think that's good in that for a lot of asian americans more so than the average american college does dominate whether you go or not it is something like if, if you are one who goes to it then the ivy leagues dominate if you decide not to go the fact that you're not going is is like a huge deal so it's not the the focus on the college that i mind it's more the the unquestioned um the lack of questioning of why we're striving for this because i mean in, in finding my voice going to harvard is the happy ending frankly in love going to stanford is the happy ending uh in patron saints uh, i think it's university of michigan uh he actually, Maybe. so he actually doesn't do that. We'll get into it in the book. Oh, well, he takes a gap year, but eventually he'll go. Um, so there is that, as I said, that, that road to to college thing that I want to see more just examined and questioned. Uh, but besides that, I, as I said, there's I don't want to be too harsh on this because it is the first. And uh, quite frankly, um, the fact that she, uh, compared to some YA, Asian-American YA novels now that gloss over race mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. hey this was, a, this was a 1992 this actually had more guts to say that than stuff now so mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give it some you know some respect for that oh one really interesting thing i noted which i think makes a i'll get to more in in uh if it hadn't been for yunjan i thought it was really interesting that when she talks about her father so the her family is comprised of her her dad mom sister and her right her dad's the only one who eats who likes korean food mm-hmm. Which I thought was a very interesting observation because, in, in if it hadn't been for Yunjun, the the intruder uh, is this like Korean boy, and even in uh, American-born Chinese, which we'll also talk about, you know, Chinki again is this like is this uh, like ponytailed like Asian <laughs> male railroader. So right. <clears throat> there is this sense that the the most intrusive, unwelcome Asian element is male and it, that's like the thing that refuses to change like I, I thought that symbolized in her family the women were ready to move on and mm-hmm. embrace like mac and cheese and pizza but it was mm-hmm. this gruff korean dad who insisted on eating kimchi hey 20 30 years later he's the one in the right right because <laughs> everyone wants to eat yeah. kimchi now uh, that's true um, especially during lockdown oh my god like kimchi makes every meal interesting i could you know eat just like sardines and kimchi every day uh so I, th- I thought that was interesting how it, whether there was this thing going on where the, the kind of incorrigible Asian-ness element was distinctly male. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't really attach the, the male gender to it so much as I attached the idea that it's like a, a strict stereotype. Like the dad eating only kimchi kind of felt like it added to the like backwards Asian parent stereotype. And it makes me wonder with like authors like Mary G, or Mary G. Lee, you know, like how, I think she has a lot of self-awareness. I think you have to have a lot of self-awareness to like, you know, write and and put this stuff out there, uh, especially with kind of how tough it is to publish. 
Um, but like when she when she does that, like is she, you know, is she putting this out there and, and saying like, hey, there is a stereotype of an Asian dad, and then in the end she says they're not so bad. There's there's more to them than just what Asian kids might think, you know, think of their their parents. Um, or is she actually like kind of unaware and is is adding to the problem, right? I don't know, it, but I I do want to say that you know self awareness is probably an important part of um, writing these stories and putting them out there because it's it's mass consumption, right? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so why don't we move on to the next book? Because I mean, it's by the same author. Mm-hmm. It, it really has a lot of the same um, baseline. It's also centers around an Asian American girl. In um, wait, is she adopted in this book? She is, yes. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's adopted. Uh, growing up in Minnesota, going in like, high school. So uh, so this is If It Hadn't Been for Yoon Basic story is a uh, Korean adoptee girl. She, you know, wants to, I think her big dream uh, is to make the cheerleading squad, at least, you know, in the immediate sense. Then comes this transfer kid, Yoon He like can't speak English well. He's fat. He's, he's weird. Uh, or he's not weird. Just like, He's just not like a guy you look at and people want to be friends with immediately. Uh, food is a big element because like, he brings, you know, the the, the typical like, stinky lunch or whatever. And this is much deals much more explicitly with race and her having to learn to see that, you know, that he's not so different from her. So what do you guys think of this book? So this one I actually liked quite a bit. Um, I felt like it had a lot more kind of empathy than the first book for for you know, a couple of things like one Asianness and two, like the outsider element in this case, Yunjin, um, the, the, uh, the, you know, the new kid, um, this is like, you know, if the, if the themes from the first book were like all the basic things that Asian kids go through, like in high school, like, you know, university, uh, you know, first love, that kind of stuff. This one goes through this kind of, um, issue that we talk about a lot here with, with Asian kids, which is like the first gen versus second gen, um, conflict, right? Like Asian Americans versus fobs. Right, mm-hmm. uh, more or less, and I th- I felt like she did a really good job just kind of treating that whole conversation, right? Because by you know by the end of the book, the main character Alice ends up over a lot of tribulations and trials, um, developing actual real empathy for not just you know the new kid, but also for herself and like where she comes from and you know her her um, and this is especially true, right? Because she's a, an adoptee, so she had the struggle that they they kind of get into a little bit at the beginning around wanting to be kind of or seeing herself as all American and needing to reaffirm that by asking her friends over and over again, like, do you see me as being American or Korean or whatever? So, you know, all, all positive there, uh, you know, decent story. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I, I thought it was really good. What about you, Liza? So this is where um, <laughs> I have to admit that I didn't read this one because uh, <laughs> when I... <laughs> I have a reason, a good one, is that I had this um, in the queue at the library, and when I was supposed to come pick it up, uh, you know, all the libraries in our county shut down. Oh, so man. my copy of If It Hadn't Been For You June is still sitting, waiting for me at the Baltimore County Public Library, which is closed indefinitely. <laughs> oh, no. You should have. It's a very short book. We could have just read it together out loud, honestly. <laughs> Story time with it's like, Plan it's A. It's like two hours, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I even okay, checked so, my queue and it, it, it is there. And I'm just like, I just can't get to it. And I have this podcast coming up. And I was like, you know, I just, I just keep my mouth shut. Because okay. I can talk right. about the other three books. Yeah. I think, um, okay, we can, we can speed through this one, especially since uh, I think a lot of the same elements were present as in uh, Finding uh, My Voice. 
But uh, I think some things to bring up. I do agree this uh, dealt with the the race thing more. I like the fact that you know Alice, the the protagonist. You're not really supposed to. Like, she she is like a a rounded character, but uh, you know she doesn't try to justify her initial prejudice. Like the book doesn't try to make her out be like, oh, you know what? Um, but you know, see from her point of view. I mean, I think you read it and you're like, damn, she was. She should have treated uh, Yunjun better, and she eventually does. But I thought that took some some guts to be like, I, I think this is probably based on a lot of personal experiences. Uh, be like, yeah, you know, when I was little, I, I really did kind of take the cowardly way out, where I, I just wanted to fit in with the popular white kid, so I didn't stick up for the for the you know Asian kid who who kind of uh, was on the periphery. So I, I thought that took that took guts to you know not sugarcoat it in that way. Um, as an Asian dude, I will say that uh, like Yunjun is kind of a saint in, in that he takes on all this abuse, but he he's always kind. He he he's like, he lives almost in poverty with his mom, and uh, you know uh, in the end he like the the, the big climax at the end is um, she and he and uh, Alice are paired up for like some multicultural festival or whatever, and uh, you know they cook Korean food and then oh everybody comes around to it even even the white kids who are mean at, with, to Yunjun, which um, is is nice but again as like seeing uh, Yunjun as like a Asian boy being I thought it reduced him a bit to a like a narrative device uh, where like hey you know what what are his you know scars from all this what what's he gonna grow up as but uh, it's like this idea that oh it's it's okay because everyone likes Korean food and. And uh, and the main character uh, has learned her lesson. I, I I really wanted to know what happened to him, which I think is a nice segue to American Born Chinese because this is written by uh, Jean Luan Yang, who's a Chinese American guy, and this is from the perspective of probably somebody kind of like Yun Jun. Um, I guess not really, because because the main character is second generation, uh, and it's it's his. Um, he's like the Alice in this story, in that he's the one who doesn't want to really hang out with like the fobs or, you know, whether real or not real. Although both, I guess, are not real because one is the, the monkey king in disguise and, and Chinky is, is some, is some like racial nightmare. <laughs> so, um, so this book uh, is quite well known. Uh, it's probably out of these four, probably the most well known. I, I had heard of it like way back in the day and um, it's a graphic novel it's three interrelated stories. One is, is the legend of the Monkey King and about how he needs to accept that he's take pride in the fact that he's a monkey and not like a human god. That story is that story one, is literally a prequel to Journey to the West or something, right? Uh, I think so. I, yeah. I don't know too much about that, but it does end with him. Uh, it, it alludes to Journey to the West. Right. The other one, the main story is, um, I forgot the main character's name, but he's this uh, Asian-American kid in San Francisco it's really Jin, wants to fit right? Yeah, Jin. Yeah, Jin Wang. Um, he wants to fit in in, in San Francisco. Then uh, a new kid from Taiwan, a, more, a kind of a fobier kid, comes. And it's about him trying at first being reluctant to befriend him, but he they become friends because he uh, you know kind of doesn't really have a choice because the other kids exclude him as well. He has a crush on Amelia, who's this like blonde girl in in his class. Then the other story is Danny, who's this like white alter ego of Jin's. And he's like living a good life, but then uh, Chinky, who's as, as I alluded to before, is this um, 
kind of like this Chinese railroader stereotype, like every negative stereotype uh, you could attach to uh, yeah, a Chinese immigrant. The author, the author just did not run away from race, did they? No, he went full yeah, yeah, force. Yeah. Full force. <laughs> like every every L and every R is switched. He has like this buck teeth. He looks like he looks like World War II propaganda against the yeah, Japanese. Kind of. So, so this is the, like that character is interesting, right? Because this is kind of what I was saying about like the stereotype, like a stereotypical dad in the first book. Like mm-hmm. it, 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 when when the stereotype becomes so like reinforced, it's almost like it kind of overflows into like like it, it's it's obvious that the the author is self aware that this is like you know a problem, and they're doing it on purpose to kind of to 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 act as an allegory to teach some kind of lesson about the character and how we treat these characters, right? So I think it's a uh, it, it's a really like it's super blunt, but it works as a tool I think to talk about racial issues. Yeah. It pushes it so far yeah. that... Yeah, the race shaming just goes so far. Yeah, it's like this is obviously... That you can't yeah. help but root against assimilation. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and... Um, yeah, so what what do you guys think of the, the actual book? I liked how quick it was. I enjoy graphic novels for... Um, I enjoy graphic novels because I think that it's, it's a really good way to just pack a lot of... Um, a lot of complex issues like these are heavy themes especially for that age and putting it into a graphic novel uh that's one of the i mean i would say it's one of the best ways to teach somebody i mean yeah, what better there's... way if you're going to do all the negative all the negative chinese stereotypes why not just draw it <laughs> yeah no there's uh, the visual element is so strong there's mm-hmm. one of my favorite sections is there's a part where jin uh his the his friend from Tai the new kid from Taiwan I forget his name I think it starts with a T, um, and then Susie who's the other Asian in their class they're all just like having a good time just like you know chatting up at lunch and then these these couple of like white kids walk by and they, and they make this uh, remark like they say something like oh it's getting a little nippy in here uh, and then and then the next panel is just them just kind of like standing around there and and you see this like look of embarrassment on their face mm-hmm. one because those kids said that but also because they feel like they can't do anything back and you could write like a paragraph about expressing their emotion and all that which would be nice but just to see that one panel of them just kind of awkwardly their chatter stopped stone cold they just like don't really know what to do next um i thought that was that was a really good part mm-hmm. yeah i weirdly flipped right to that page as you're describing it oh you you found it yeah, right away looking, looking through this thing um th- this i mean like visually this book is fucking fantastic like i love how mm-hmm. the frames are all kind of constrained I'm, I'm just talking about like the the visual layout and stuff of, of this is a graphic novel um mm-hmm. they're constrained to this kind of like uh multi-grid format that they they run throughout the entire book with these three different stories that eventually tie together i think it's like really beautifully thought through and and well done um there's these like there's these like um Chinese characters, uh, it looks like a stamp, right? At the top of each frame. I really wish I knew what they said because I feel like it's relevant to what's happening in the story. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just like the whole thing is just really well put together. I've never, there's actually quite a few um, um, Asian American, uh, you know, graphic, like graphic novel writers and illustrators out there who work for like Marvel and DC and whatnot. But I've never read one that was actually um, like, one where they they wrote a story themselves uh and and it it comes through right like it's it's you know in some cases very blunt but it really does come through um one part that was kind of funny and hit me 
hit me kind of personally was uh, at one point in the main storyline, I guess, with um, Jin, um, he ends up getting a, a perm because he sees that like the blo- his <laughs> yeah. blonde friend. I love that part. <laughs> yeah, his, his blonde friend, um, you know, gets a perm and, or, or like he, he notices the, the guy has curly hair and it's like, I guess, a distinguishing feature between this him and this like blonde white guy. Uh, and, and he, you know, the scene is like the, they're like in science class or something and his buddy is like just lapping it up, having a good time, you know, fitting in, fitting in right with everybody. And he like, you know, visually they kind of like emphasize the perm is like the reason why. And so in the next frame, he like gets a perm and it looks kind of ridiculous on him. But throughout the rest of the no, story- The funny thing was, it, it. the funny thing is it looked ridiculous on the white guy as well. I'm trying to, when was this published? I'm going to guess it's probably like early- 2006. Okay, 2006. Yeah. Because that, that like- that perm on the white dude—it's very like Justin Timberlake and sync, uh, you know, frosted, frosted, frozen <laughs> yeah, ramen is. noodles. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and you can tell from the way they draw it, he has a, he gets a pretty tight perm as well, kind of like trying to match matches uh, his friend's look. And it's funny because I I read that and I was like, I recently got a perm. <laughs> I think at the beginning, Philip, your perm is much much better than than that one. Uh, yes, yeah, okay, it's 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 more subtle and so on, but like. I think the thing that went through my head this is just a very personal anecdote, but like, I was like, yeah, like to some extent, like when you do a big, like you make a big change to your visual appearance, like through your hair or your clothes or whatever, you're really trying to like either graft yourself onto or like mold yourself to fit into some other space. And that perm as an allegory does a really good job here in the book. And so it actually made me self-reflect. I was like, did I get a perm because I wanted to look more white? Like me personally. Like, was that what, because like, you know, I, I have white friends who have like great hair, curlier than mine, you know. Um, I never had issues with my hair. I just want to realize at the end is that, one, I never really had issues with having straight hair. I just wanted to try something different. And mm-hmm. two, I got a perm not so much because I wanted to look more white, but because I actually, I don't know if I wanted to look more Korean, but like, it was really because like, Korean guys have awesome hair. They have awesome style. Like, oh, wow, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say yeah. the same thing. I and, was like, the, the whole perming thing, I'm like, is this like a Chinese thing? Because I know that like Korean dudes, they tend to have like wavy hair too, right? Korean and then dudes like and Filipino Japanese guys, dudes. and Filipino guys have like you know, there's tons of texture in their hair. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think Filipinos have way more, like wavier hair, and than it's and it's Korean. natural. Yeah, yeah. I, I, have a, I have a Filipino mm-hmm. cousin who's who's got wavy hair, and I've always been a little bit it's envious of that. It's coarse and wavy. So, but what I was getting at was that I think like you know, think about my own experience with, with perms and, and this book is that this book was maybe a little bit further in the past where it was about being more white and maybe now it's actually about being more Asian, right? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like for me, it was mm-hmm. like trying a different Asian hairstyle, not trying a white hairstyle. So mm-hmm. anyway, I thought the perm as an allegory was was really good in the book. Well, you, well, you see that in the book uh, at the end where uh, the, the fob friend is now, he looks like some, uh, you know, he's like, smoking uh, he, he his hairstyle is like some top knot yeah he's he's looking for milk tea so th- that does seem to be a glimpse in the future <laughs> where like he drives like a modified he's Nissan. the cool one yeah yeah he, he's got like two earrings um yeah. he, he kind of looks like a, a you know an asian dude from fast and the furious now yeah he does yeah. he does like yeah. literally every asian dude that has like a hundred thousand followers on instagram or like on tiktok or something like a like an asian e-boy on tiktok yeah he looks, yeah. Like, he, he looks like a he looks like an asian fuck boy actually like he really does <laughs> yeah, sure. and, and the lot like they meet up in this boba shop and like the line that cracks me up is um you know there's chatting and he's he just like out of the blue says the milk tea here sucks 
And then like yeah. he offers to take his uh, his friend to like uh, like a better place that's like you know down the street from here. Like that that's a it's just a great way to encapsulate the idea of like you know his friend Wei Chan like has found confidence in his own in his own life in America, right? Despite being a first gen you know a fob or whatever. Um, but you know Jin the the main character is still somewhat struggling. You know I thought that was kind of interesting um, and and kind of well put together in this book. Yeah, there's another part I liked, which is how when Jin first transfers into the new school, mm-hmm. um, you know, people kind of like snicker at him. There's like there's Susie Nakamura, who's the only other Asian in the cl- in the class, and she happens to be a girl, and everyone starts joking about how they're arranged to get married. And after that, he says, "Yeah," and, and then we kind of avoided each other yeah. after that. Yeah, I do. I, I like that because I, in the first two books we discussed, it's from the perspective of a Asian American girl. And but this one's from a, from a guy, so I I like out uh, how it showed that you know it's not that different because you know in in the Marie G Lee books the the protagonist is always you know wants like the the white boyfriend, but here in this book he you know he ignores the Asian girl and and wants Amelia who's who's the who's the blonde girl, mm-hmm. and um and then he kind of get, later gets sabotaged by his white friend which is a really dick move on on his part, but I I think that's good it shows that the uh, our experiences are not that different. I mean, the way that America stereotypes uh, Asian men and women leads to different outcomes. But at, at the root of it, we're all really kids kind of in that classroom, uh, unsure of where we belong and kind of avoiding each other. A lot of us go through that. Mm-hmm. So I like that this book provided that perspective. I don't see, I don't think we see a lot of it from like an Asian boy's perspective and to show that, yeah, we're, we're not like some race warriors who are like strong from the day one, you know? It's like, yeah. we go through the same stuff too. So I like that. This book, because it goes so far, um, I, I wonder what like, what someone from China would think if they read this book hmm. or like a recent immigrant they probably wouldn't get it, uh, and they'll, they. I'm gonna guess they'll be like, "Oh, what? What do you have to be complain of?" Which I would say, you know, shut the fuck up. Like, you have your <laughs> own things. I've got my right to say my own things, and so whatever. This doesn't apply to you. They, they, that's why it kind of pissed me off when, when, uh, you know, the farewell people it didn't do well in China, and then I heard some people oh, again. You cannot trust Hollywood news because they'll all, they'll pick like two comments off of you know Chinese social media and, and try to act <laughs> like the whole country. It's like the official country line. Right. But some people were complaining about how oh this is isn't about us and so I was like it's not supposed to be about you. So shut the fuck up. You know not everything has to be about you. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but you said Jin Yang, the the author, an artist. He he is um, you know first gen Taiwanese, right? Well, first gen. Do you mean that he immigrated here as an adult? Yeah, yeah, or or yeah, that's what that's what I mean. Or 1.5. Oh, jet, right? uh, I, he's, he's, I'm not entirely sure. Okay. Because like, it's just interesting because the Wei Chan character, right? The, the the new kid from Taiwan, right? Who becomes buddies with Jin. Like, he's a very confident guy. Like he, you know, there's that one, you know, moment of shame they have when they get uh, picked on by those bullies. But like, aside from that, like he just kind of conducts his life, right? He gets, he gets mm. the, he gets a girlfriend. He like, is super confident. He's got an accent, but he doesn't give a fuck. And at the end of it, he's like this cool dude who drives a cool car. Right, like I can I can see kind of Chinese um, readers reading this and being like, yeah, why can't Jin be a bit more like Wei Chen and just fucking you know cool his D's and just you know be chill, right? Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. enjoy yeah. high school and, and go with the flow. And I understand from our perspective, you know, Chris, you and me, like having gone through you know being second gen and growing up here, it's we can't do that. You know, it is hard. But I can see that that you get that bit of um, that perspective from the Wei Chen character, right? 
Yeah, just to just to interject, Gene uh, Luan Yang was born in California. I'm on his wiki uh, right okay. now. This is hilarious. He's uh, early life. Yang believes he was born in either Alameda or Fremont, California. <laughs> it's like, they're, they're, I guess, yeah. So I guess he's not sure where exactly, but it is in California. Okay. Should we move on to the last book then? Let's do it. Uh, before we up. move on to the the last book, um, I I had a question that I wanted to bring up earlier, and I think it was either Chris or Philip that was talking about the gatekeeping. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was Philip, yeah. Philip, yeah. So, um, like the own voices movement is pretty new, right? But like, what's the difference between the own voices movement now, and like? A lot of these Asian American authors, from like Marie G. Lee and um, and Yang of American Born Chinese, like what's the difference? Aren't they? Why aren't they considered own voices? Like what what defines the own voices movement? Because I would say that like if you don't if you don't are not if you're not considered part of the like hashtag own voices movement, like isn't that like another? That's like the new gatekeepers, right? So for the for the uh, audience and maybe for me because <laughs> I'm not really sure. What this movement is can you tell us what it is chris you're the one that um we talked about this do, I, I i don't know i don't know if i can explain it well for the audience i would assume it's it's a kind of like an informal guild of sorts of yeah yeah it seems very like inner circle very social justice oriented i i, I think your main question is like are we just swapping out one bad gatekeeper for another yes i am Okay. That is that is exactly what I'm asking here. Yeah, but one one of them is kind of institutional, right? Like the the publishers, right? The editors and so on. And then this this uh, own voices movement, which I assume is some kind of like social media organized online movement. I mean, I I wouldn't. I would say that like own voices has become institutional too, because and this is you know this is not Asian American, but um, and it's kind of tangential, but like. Mm-hmm. Do you guys remember like the whole American dirt controversy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah. And that was that was like that whole controversy was started by the own voices. Oh, I see. Movement and, you know, Chris, I can't remember if if you read the book too, but I I No, I, I mean I I thought the controversy was unfair, but I I I wouldn't have read the book either way, but I did think that it it did seem more like a like a guild war, you know, like yeah. our union, uh, we want to block out this type of writer to protect our own writers. And it was all couched in this terms of social justice, mm-hmm. which, which mm-hmm. Uh, turned me off. Yeah, I, uh, I read the book and um, I thought that the writing was good. I thought it was fast paced and it was thrilling. I can imagine it being made into a movie easily. And I, the, the uh-huh. only problem that I could find with the book is that the author is white. Right. Other than that, I didn't see a problem. I didn't see any problems in there. Yeah, I, I think I think substantively, um, the only thing people could really gripe at was the Spanish wasn't quite accurate in in some spaces. Some thought like the story was a little outlandish because I think it's about a mother and son who escaped via train. They're like that will never happen. Then again, I'm guessing that in this genre of like kind of commercial fiction, there's a lot of uh, stretching. Oh, there's gonna be of in, the yeah, there's, yeah, there's gonna be like inaccuracies all over the place. I mean, right. So I think it, I think it's really Jason more Bourne series. <laughs> so I think it's really more about um, protecting their their like clique of writers more than anything. Mm-hmm. So so like so own voices, you know, on the surface it sounds like it's a great thing, but I mean we've had great we've had Asian authors since way before own voices ever started. 
Yeah, and and I'm sure it'll devolve into just uh, you know friends blurbing each other and trying to become the new starting Twitter new, wars. Yeah, the the new like plastics or whatever of, of the literary <laughs> world. It, it's eventually going to come down to that. So yeah, I, I would agree. You can never, generally speaking, never trust gatekeepers. Always be skeptical. Always be trying to push something that they're not comfortable with because that's the only way you can make progress. Well, I was just thinking about it because I was like, you know, there's going to be a whole bunch of Asian American authors that declare themselves like own voices, uh, like defenders of own voices. But like so many Asian, especially Asian American authors, like they're they're like they they you know they can probably say something and like claim authenticity like oh i'm asian so i'm writing about my own experience and i'm right i only know i know better than anyone else how to write like these asian characters and i would say sometimes they really don't and shouldn't you know yeah <laughs> like some and, of them and, some of them i'm like you know you might be asian but you might be better off just writing white characters because right, i don't right. think that you are capable of, of of treating an asian character with any respect i don't think you know how to talk about race like i don't i i don't i don't think that just because the author is asian it means that it's going to be good like i'm i'm so sick of people I'm so sick of seeing people defend books that just aren't that good and like being forced to say, oh, well, this is their experience. You can't erase that or devalue it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think that's why it's so important to have to look at things like finding my voice as a time capsule because, hey, not that much time has passed since then. You know, like Marie Lee is still alive and thriving. She's not Mm -hmm. like she's not like Charles Dickens way back in the past. (laughs) So. And I saw, and I felt this when, when like, say something like *Parasite* won Best Picture, or you know, other other like landmark Asian cultural moments, like say *Crazy Rich Asians* came out, and you got all these Asian Americans who are like in their thirties, forties, um, saying, "Oh, this is a watershed uh, a, moment." <laughs> well, like, like for them personally, this is they're like, "Oh, I've never been more proud to be Asian," which I'm happy to hear. But then it's like, wait a minute, that means you spent the vast, vast majority <laughs> of your life not being proud, and you're and they're the people writing these asian characters so we got to be be like hey wait a minute like if you weren't proud of being asian until like 2018 and and you're writing all your life uh asian characters like what are those characters saddled with you know they're like the author's own baggage and everything so we got we got to be skeptical about that call call it out i mean not like not like be like too harsh about it if 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 you know it's understandable but got to be got to be on the lookout because hey we are we are shedding a lot of baggage every second right now. Mm-hmm. We're not out of mm-hmm. the woods, not by a long shot. Did you, uh, I know it just came out this weekend, but are you guys planning on watching Tiger Tail? Yes, I am. You know, I resisted so hard. I didn't want to watch it. And then like <laughs> I caved in because there's too many memes and there's too many like, there's too many parodies oh, about Tiger King. So I no, no, Tiger whole- Tail. Tiger, no, 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 Tiger Tail. Tiger Tail. The Alan Yang. Oh, shit. <laughs> 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 no, completely different. So, when you said memes, I was like, what? Yeah, what? what? Really? <laughs> like, I, I don't think... Th- I don't think this is a type of movie that's memeable, um, unless unless you want like slow, languorous shots of the Taiwanese countryside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay, I'm, I'm, so Tiger Tail is the one that was the guy with um was he like one of the co-writers for Master, Master of None? Yeah. Is that yeah, the yeah, one? Yeah. yeah, Alan Yang. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oops. Uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway, I don't I don't want to sidetrack too much from the last book, but like I just brought it up because I saw this tweet about how um, you know. 
I think Inu Inu Kang, I think from uh, Slate wrote like a kind of Inku Kang, Inku Inku Kang, Kang sorry, yeah. wrote like a kind of negative uh, review of it, and then someone responded with, "Oh, really? Hey, I'm I'm happy we're at the point where we don't have to fucking defend something just because it's like a, a race piece, right? Like just because it's about oh, interesting. I'm I'm yeah, I'm interested. Yeah, in why we, we should like be it. free to criticize stuff coming from you know writers of color or people of color because if we are allowing them to produce enough stuff to represent their folks, then there should be some bad stuff that comes out once in a while too. So anyway, yeah. interesting. I, I don't so know. Wait, she, she said she gave Tiger Tail a bad review. She did. And then someone said, hey, this is it's a good thing to once in a while, like not like something, you know? I see. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't always agree with Inku King, but I, I like that she doesn't always go with the... Yeah. Like like she will, she will take some breaks from from the kind of mainstream Asian American thought. So I'm, I'm very yeah, interested yeah, yeah. in what, what she had to say. But I will watch it first, and I've heard uh, from some people who I would expect to not like it actually like it. So um, yeah, that that actually like sometimes bad reviews they make me more curious than good reviews. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, especially since just nowadays, like too many things get good reviews. I think some uh, of my some of my okay, most of my favorite movies got trashed. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I know you guys remember that whole three billboards debacle. I know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think I think it's the Rotten Tomatoes effect where all these movies are just trying to be. Uh, they're like avoiding failure. Well, they always try to do that, but especially now since the Rotten Tomatoes rating is so important. Who 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 are these Rotten Tomato ratings based off of? They're based off of like normal people. So there's yeah, like users, the normal right? people um, rating and then there's like the critic rating. Oh, no, I'm talking they... about the critics rating. I'm, I'm pretty sure they care about the critics rating more. So it's like, okay, let's just not make everyone hate this. Uh, it's better to have everyone kind of like it than to have half the people adore it and half the people not like it. Even though in terms of artistic merit, it's probably better to be polarized because, hey, at least you're making a lasting impression. Rather than just being like a like a B plus movie uh, all around. Anyway, uh, can okay. you delete right. the thing about the Tiger King? <laughs> no, let's keep that in. That was hilarious. No, <laughs> that's pretty funny. <laughs> come on, come on, Liza. People are gonna relate. People are gonna relate. I forgot that Tiger Tail existed. Oh, <laughs> okay. Because there's only room. There's only room in my mind for like one tiger. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Let's move on to the last book. Uh, this one I was really happy to read because I don't read a, a lot about you know Filipino Americans. So mm-hmm. this one is Patron Saints of Nothing. So the story of this, it's uh, the main character. Uh, what's his name? I always forget the these first person books because you never see their name. Um, I, I forget the, the names. Jay. Yeah. Jay. Okay. So Jay, Filipino American guy mm-hmm. uh, living in America. Uh, Mestizo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a. I'll get to that later. Um. So he finds out that his cousin in the Philippines has just died. And this is a cousin that he was fairly kind of close with. They were pen pals, but he hadn't responded in a while. And he wants to find out why he died, but people are being really shifty. So he decides to go to the Philippines himself to investigate. And then he finds out that his cousin, whose name was... Um, uh, again, June. June, yeah, June. Yeah. Um, was involved in protesting against the Duterte government, mm-hmm. especially in the, you know, standing up for people being killed indiscriminately in the drug war. Uh, to make things harder, June's dad is a high-ranking police officer. Uh, so it, it's him kind of carrying out the this independent investigation in the Philippines. Uh, so what what do you guys think of this book? So I was looking forward to this for such a long time. So um Randy, uh, Randy Ribeye is a convener for Malaya Movement also, and that's actually how we met. 
Uh-huh. And oh, cool. I really love that this novel is getting so much attention right now because, you know, despite being in the international news a lot, there aren't that many works of fiction, at least from the Filipino-American perspective, about mm-hmm. living in the Philippines during the Duterte era. And this is a pretty good primer for the situation in the Philippines. Like, I, I would say that this book, you know, it, it um, though it's, it's a, it's targeted to YA, 12 to 18s, but I would say that anyone can read this because I would say that like most Americans have no idea what's going on over there. They just think it's like, oh, Trump of the Philippines. Right, So right. Jay represents all of us over here. For sure. Philip, what do you think? I thought this book was great. Um, you know, I, the premise was really exciting. You know, the idea of like trying to, um, you know, not get revenge, but like go and find out what happened in a different, completely different country you haven't been to in forever. Um, to your to your cousin like that 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 would, it's just an exciting plot you know I think it was a bit slow at the beginning but it moved along quite well um, mm-hmm. and and really like I just like following like the, the main character Jay's like character development and character arc right going from mm-hmm. this kid who like you know got into college playing video games kind of goofing off you know um, out in America like not really knowing much about where his 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 background is from his heritage is from to going like headfirst uh, into the Philippines and like meeting all these interesting characters and learning about his past um, and and trying to uncover what happened to his cousin. Um, it was just cool to see because like, it, it feels to me a bit like there's this, I don't know, there's this kind of like basic rite of passage that Asian Americans go through where at mm-hmm. some point they have some meaningful like trip back to their kind of country of origin. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. um, and I know Jay, he, like in this, in this book, he's, he's been back there as a kid, didn't really think much of it because, you know, you're a dumb kid. But going back as like a, a 17 year old uh, or 16 year old. With, uh, like, with intent. With intent. Know? Yeah. With, with something, you know, something that just had crushed you emotionally and trying to uncover uh, something quite important. Um, you know, it's it, and, and, and I, I don't think that the average Asian American who goes back to their country of origin is going to go back trying to find out who killed their cousin. But <laughs> um, but he, he goes through a lot of the stuff that, that you would, you know, that you would, uh, expect someone to do, right. Like learning a bit of the language, right. Um, getting involved with uh, the local community, like learning about the food. And, um, he, he does a karaoke night with like locals and stuff and, and you tell these great people and those kinds of experiences, they sound like they're the kind of things that you, you go through when you hear about someone who like never really thought about race or never really liked being Asian, but going back to wherever they were from coming mm-hmm. back. And then having a, a really different perspective. And I think I don't know, Chris, if you you were someone I talked to on Plan A about that, um, but like definitely the story is something that that is a recurring theme and almost feels like a like a rite of passage or coming of age kind of thing uh, for Asian Americans. And this book does a great job of of doing that while covering the uh, the kind of drug war that's happening right in, in an exciting way. So I re- I really really enjoyed it. Um, some good twists and turns in there too, for sure. Yeah, Philip, I agree with you. I thought the beginning was a slow. I, I think the first hundred pages, I it took me about hundred pages to get really into the story. I think the main problem is that, um, I mean, the Jay is is too much of a blank slate. Uh, so that in the beginning, when it's all about him grieving for June, whom we haven't even met, uh, like in real, like we only know of him through his letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have these two characters that aren't very well defined. Uh trying to guide the story in the first hundred pages but then he gets into the philippines you start meeting like june's dad his sisters uh other characters in the philippines that's when that's when the story got uh quite good one thing i really liked uh i mean not to give away the ending is that turns out like june's dad i mean he has his problems but he's not like some 
he's not like Hitler. Like you realize that he <laughs> did actually love his son and and tried to save him, which I thought made the story a lot better. I was a little worried that it was gonna go into because June's already so saint like. Like he even has his like Mary Magdalene where he like falls in love with the um the, the trafficked woman mm-hmm. and like he takes her in and he, like saves her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he but at first he's like he's too pure. So even though she loves him, he doesn't want to love her back because he feels like he's taking advantage. I thought June was like too clean cut and too saint like to really be believable. But then in the end, you realize actually he did have a drug problem. But then that doesn't make him bad, and I think that's good because the implication was if June did have a drug problem then that would like ruin him yeah in the eyes of like jay mm-hmm. and everyone but it's like no he did have a problem like a lot of people do because you know life can be hard there yeah. and his well, dad also it reflects oh, yeah, what actually is going on in the philippines you know like the people that are getting killed they are drug users and they are drug pushers uh the, the difference is that um like is is being a drug user or a drug seller like does that deserve the death penalty right of course not that's so right. extreme that <laughs> mm-hmm. and and i think the story was wise to actually make june a drug user because if yeah. if because mm-hmm. the implication was like oh if he were if he used then then he might have kind of deserved to die and and jay and his sisters or, or even if they made him completely innocent then then it puts so much on a lot like the thirty thousand people in the philippines that have been killed and are users or sellers yeah. and it's just like oh well june didn't deserve it but they did yeah exactly so i i like the fact that both he and his dad were shown to be uh have their you know both good sides and bad sides i thought because um yeah so i i really like the ending there and um oh i i brought up the fact so it's like the the main character is is biracial. He has a white mom, and when when I saw that, I was like, you know, because like these some of these Asian American books, they have this like tendency to just create these uh, mixed race characters out of nowhere. I think it's mostly <laughs> uh, a clumsy attempt to show the the tortured inside. Am I Asian? Am am I American? By which they mean white, and to like literally show that in their body, you know, half and half. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Liza, you told me that Randy Rabai actually is mestizo, so I was like, okay, that's good. Um, yeah, he's actually he is. Yeah, he, his own and, his, uh, and just like Jay in the novel, um, Randy's dad is Filipino and his mom is white. Yeah, so I was like, okay, that's good. It's it's yeah. not another I, I didn't, example of this weirdness. Yeah, I didn't feel like the the kind of like biracial kind of struggle was was a, a big piece at all. It was the, the big kind of struggle for him, which I enjoyed through the book, was like his own ignorance as an American, right? Like mm-hmm. he, he like starts off like kind of knowing that there's some kind of weird drug thing happening in the Philippines, but, but, you know, not really having any of the details to getting, you know, completely kind of uh, wrapped up in, in a specific case uh, during this drug war. And like throughout that whole process, he like has to go through a lot of pain learning this stuff and also a lot of kind of shame not knowing it. And I, I kind of wonder if, again, that reflects on Asian Americans who like, you know, we, we, we're born here and then we just like don't really think about not just what's happening politically in the world um, back back at home, but even just about ourselves and like what it means to be, uh, in his case, mixed race, right? Or from a different culture. Um, and going through the steps of learning about that is like, again, that like coming of age thing that we would have to go through that a white person would not, right? So, so yeah, that was- like, I was just thinking about how for a lot of us, you know, like earlier, Philip, when you said that every Asian person goes through like this meaningful trip back home. Yeah. I, I, I think that everyone has like that, um, that romantic 
idea that like, you know, I don't, I've never felt like I fit in here in America. When I go home to the Philippines, I'm going to, you know, everything is going to fall into place. And then it's like, for a lot of us, like we go to the Philippines and then we've never felt more American. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> did, did you have that kind of, uh, experience when you were like around Jay's age? Uh, so let me think here. Jay is what? 17, 18. Yeah. He's a senior, right? Yeah, in the high school when yeah. this happens, yeah. So I, the first time I went to the Philippines was when I was four for my Lolo's funeral. I went again in high school, um, younger than Jay though. And then mm-hmm. I went again for a, a cousin's wedding when I was 20. So I was like a sophomore in college. Yeah, it was pretty much the same thing. Like I get there and I had trouble picking up the language because like, you know, when you, when you take, when you, when you speak Tagalog, it's like, you speak your parents Tagalog, which yeah. is kind of, it's kind of trapped in its own era. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, you go to see, the Philippines, you hang out with your cousins who are your age and they oh, have yeah, like, sure, yeah. they have like their own slang and their own way. They have their own <laughs> vernacular, their own way of talking and you can't keep up because they just talk so fast, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, uh, Liza, would you recommend, uh, uh, is almost still on Netflix? It is. It should be. It's one okay. of their original. It's it's like Netflix original programming. I believe that the, it should still be there. Yes, right. I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, I think it would make a good companion piece to mm-hmm. this. Uh, you know, you get a much more visual and an oral uh, sense of what it's like to be there. Mm-hmm. What this drug war looks like. And Amo is really easy to binge because it was originally made, well, before Netflix purchased it, it was originally made for um, network television in the Philippines, which were Uh, uh, 30 minute, um, you know, 30 minute episodes, but take away all the commercials and every episode is only like 18, 20 minutes. Mm. Uh So you you can, you can binge the whole thing in just a few hours and it's only one season so far. One of my favorite chapters in Patron Saints of Nothing. Don't worry, this this isn't a spoiler for the audience. But it's oh, when, we already spoiled some, so it's okay. <laughs> it's when Jay goes to that museum in Manila with his uncle Tito Mining. Yeah, and they have that long conversation about the political climate in the Philippines with uh, Tito Mining really defending Duterte's stance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the whole war on drugs. And you know that conversation, I think. Uh, especially for a lot of people who are anti-Duterte here in the Philippines, it teaches you how to handle it when your own friends and relatives try to invalidate that moral understanding. Because mm-hmm. here in the States, like, it is just, it's not, it, it's like we could never comprehend that someone who uses or pushes drugs would would be deserving of, like, death. Right. Uh-huh. And it's it's so unfortunate that over there, it's like that that drug war is pretty popular. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Liza, I was going to ask you actually, kind of like the question um, we were asking about, like how would a, a Chinese Chinese person feel about um, American-born Chinese, a graphic novel? Like, how do you think a Filipino mm-hmm. uh, person would feel about Patron Saints of Nothing if they read it? I think it would be split among the generations. Really. Like yeah. some people would just be like, this is some trash bullshit, like, you know, hippie liberal shit from America. And then others would be like, yeah, this is like, I, I do feel like it's good to get that perspective of the the kind of moral undertaking. Yeah, of- like, like I would say that, um, like if you were like our parents age, mm-hmm. then you might read the book and just be like, well, that's a good explanation. But, you know, um, this is from an American perspective. You don't know what it's like to live in the Philippines. Right. Um, someone who's young and in the Philippines, though. I think that they would be 
they would read this book and just be like, well, this is great. This is exactly how we feel too. And it's glad that they're pushing it out there to, um, for, you know, to Amer Philam kids mm -hmm. so that they know what's going on over here. Cause I would say that young people in the Philippines are much more against the war than the, uh, the older generations are. They, they are much more, uh, they're, they're much more for reform than the older generation. Pretty much just like here. Yeah. Some things don't change. Yeah. Uh, Eliza, do you have any other recommendations for like Filipino American books, whether fiction or nonfiction? Yes. Um, I actually have several recommendations of YA books that, uh, for just, uh, not even Filipino, but um, I would say, uh, oh, you know what? I can give you this. I have my um, top books of 2019 that I wrote up on Asian American novels, nonfiction and fiction. And um, I will give those, I'll give the link to you, Chris, and you can put them in the show notes. All right. So for our listeners, if you want to, you know, more Asian American books, uh, I'll put that link that Liza talked about. Because uh, I think we're all doing a lot of reading um, these days. I hope we are. Because I, I was researching just how people are using the internet more mm -hmm. during the lockdown. Uh -huh. And people are like streaming more. They're actually paying more, much more attention to uh, hard factual news, well, which is, I guess, good. And also doing a lot of uh, video conferencing and stuff. What's actually down is, I think, things like opinion columns, culture writing. They're kind of like softer type of nonfiction you would see. Mm -hmm. uh, they say like all the partisan sites like, say, Breitbart or Daily Beast or these sites are all down. So I'm, I'm just wondering are what they are really? people... Why? Because I, I think pe right now people just want... Is it want... too much um, fake, like, coronavirus information? I, I think people, is that why? I think the, the people's capacity for news right now is very uh, focused on the hard news. Like, when, uh, you know, how many people have died? What can I do to help, you know, my family or mm -hmm. others? You know, how do I cook this or that? I don't think people really want to read about, say, like, impeachment or you know politics or or, or that kind of uh, mm -hmm. more opinionated partisan stuff mm -hmm. yeah so I, I do hope that in the meantime like people are maybe going to their bookshelves and all the books that they bought to impress their friends but never really intended on reading now they have time to read it i don't know if you remember this chris but at the city lit festival last spring uh when i opened up the floor for questions at the end of our panel um, do you remember the guy that stood up in the back and he said he grew up in a very bookish family and his parents were really dedicated to making sure that all voices were represented in the stories that they read together. So black, native, Latino, LGBT. Oh yeah, I think I remember that. Yeah. Muslim. But not once did they ever read a book by an Asian or an Asian American author. And he said, hmm. looking back, his experience spoke volumes about the erasure and the invisibility of Asians, not, not just in literature, but in all forms of media. And we just weren't part of the conversation for him and his family, despite mm -hmm. how much they really reached out and tried to be as diverse as possible. Uh huh. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so I think um, not only should people, you know, take podcasts like this to find out what to read, they should also uh, take it upon themselves to write because mm -hmm. as I said, there there is this big cultural leg. We are a generation of people who. For many of us, like only recently, uh, felt really proud to you know eat Asian food or, or consume Asian media or you know even have like Asian friends and associates and stuff. So uh, you know, we there is a big vacuum and we need people to fill it. And it'd be good if it were people who you know like this podcast and stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> so go out there and and do your thing. I think that I think that when it comes to uh, YA, I think that um, 
if you're a POC author, so uh, if you are listening and you are an Asian writer, I think that publishers now tend to label a lot of POC authors YA, even when they're not, just because they think that um, marketing POC authors to younger people who are less rigid about the race of the writer, you know? And then also, also just because like, I think that YA is also exploding because that's the, the market that's that's getting the most lucrative movie deals too. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, true. And I, and as I said, like, I know a lot of people look down on YA, uh, not without some justification, because there, there are some like trope, there are some like tropes in YA, you know, the whole like, too obsessed with just like puppy love kind of thing that can get uh, a bit much. Mm-hmm. But hey, YA is like some of the best books uh, out there are you know, based on like teenagers mm-hmm. and that doesn't, it, it's just a subject matter, like the style YA, uh, you might not like for, for good reason, but Hey, yeah, writing about young people never gets old. There's so much stuff to good stuff to explore. So don't let, don't, you know, don't be a useless snob, you know, no need to look down a on, useless on the genre. Snob. Be a, be, don't be a useless, be a useful snob. Exactly. You know, there are some things you should be snobby about, but this is, <laughs> this is not one of those. I just want to say like, uh, this this was really good to set up. I I'm the kind of reader who reads like mostly nonfiction, and I love reading fiction, but I, I don't get a ton of great recommendations. So kind of being like you know not forced, but basically forced <laughs> to read these four books is really great. And I'm I'm definitely going to seek out more now that I've got a taste for it. Yeah, definitely. I don't think it has anything to do with what we talked about like at the end, but I was just <laughs> I'm still like very um annoyed by the whole own voices gatekeeping that goes on mm-hmm. and you know how like we bash white people for not being able to write POC characters properly and yeah. that's I mean that's probably right but then it gives too much credit to Asian authors just like any Asian author uh-huh. the power has just shifted right the power has shifted from these old institutions that are like all white and all old school and they choose what gets published to this new kind of like diversity all the time movement, which gets you in trouble sometimes because then you have and like over the top social justice and yeah, like political ex- exactly, correctness. Exactly, right? It makes you think of like that like all women scene in the Avengers, which felt like a little bit overdone and like the backlash to like <laughs> the backlash to like, you know, the Sonic the Hedgehog versus the uh Harley Quinn movie, like all that shit, right? It's <laughs> kind of from from overdoing it. Cause especially when you overdo it to a point where it's about making money, right? And commercialization yeah. and not mm-hmm. about actually like sharing interesting news stories. So I, I understand why you're frustrated. There's a lot of there's a lot of Asian writers where, you know, like they, they attend these um, elite MFA programs and their yeah. stories get workshopped and you yeah. can tell. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, those I mean, are just, I, I think we I think we can have a whole pod, uh, yeah. a different pod about that. As as my last thought, I mean Philip, you brought up the Avengers. I will say like Avengers Endgame is such like a blight on our society. <laughs> have you seen that meme um where it, you know that final battle where all the where all the Marvel good guys uh, zoom in, teleport in from somewhere, except they photoshopped all the faces to be like all the the mainstream Democrats. And Thanos was burning. Oh my God, that's fucking... When I first saw that, I thought it was a parody. I thought it was like a, a, you know... Oh, but you're saying they they are fully buying into it, like they're like the no, it was serious. Oh, Jesus. Like they really thought Bernie Sanders was Thanos. I thought Holy this was made fuck. by a pro Bernie person showing how deluded uh, the the like Biden Klobuchar Mayor Pete uh, people were. Oh my god! But no, it was serious. And then actually, I think it was uh, Jay Caspian King who retweeted that when I saw it, and he said that uh, he was so happy that y- you know uh, Benedict Wong that his character mm-hmm. they couldn't they couldn't find the uh. uh at the time, an Asian face to put there. I guess after Andrew Yang endorsed Biden, 
they would have put his face on there. But this was before that happened. So Benedict Wong did not get an Asian face on him because there was no Asian to put on. (laughs) Uh, So sad. Anyway, all right. So great to have you guys on. Liza, again, I'm very happy to to have you back. And I'm sure uh, you'll be on many more times, Philip. Uh, Pleasure as always. Hope you guys have a great day. You too. Thank you. Hope the listeners enjoy this pod. We'll be back soon. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. Bye, all.